Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. An Erio's original. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and I am The Alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we're discussing the USS Indianapolis. Here's what you need to know. On July 16, 1945, a Portland-class heavy cruiser named the USS Indianapolis quietly departed the California coast for the Pacific island of Tinian. The boat was carrying heavily guarded, top-secret cargo that the U.S. military claimed would end the Second World War. Unbeknownst to anyone on the ship, including Captain Charles B. McVeigh III, the heavy cruiser carried essential elements of the atomic bomb that would be dropped on Hiroshima less than three weeks later. The only thing made crystal clear to Captain McVeigh was that the faster he got to Tinian, the sooner the war would be over. The Indianapolis completed its 5,000-mile journey in only 10 days. On July 26th, the Indianapolis delivered its lethal cargo to the American base in Tinian and then proceeded to Guam to prepare for the final leg of her journey. The ship was expected to cross the remaining portion of the Pacific en route to the Philippine island of Leyte, where the crew would complete two weeks of training. On Sunday evening, July 29th, the Indianapolis encountered rough waters while traveling through the Philippine Sea. Just before 8 p.m., Captain McVeigh instructed the officer of the deck, Lieutenant Charles B. McKissick, to stop the routine zigzag due to poor visibility. It was standard fleet orders that a ship should zigzag on a clear day, thought to be a method of defense from enemy submarine attack. Though many submariners claimed a zigzagging ship could still be sunk. A ship should normally stop the zigzag at sunset, except on clear, brightly moonlit nights. At 11 p.m. that Sunday night, 
Lieutenant Commander Mochitsura Hashimoto, skipper of the Japanese submarine I-58, discovered a black spot on the horizon. He immediately ordered his vessel to dive, and watching closely through the periscope, readied torpedo tubes and his one-man human torpedoes for firing at the unidentified target. Hashimoto was convinced the vessel was a cruiser or battleship. Despite the fact that it had started slowly veering away from the submarine, Hashimoto decided he could sink it. From a 1,500-yard range, he fired six torpedoes, each of which carried a lethal 1,210-pound explosive charge at the unsuspecting ship. A first-hand account from a captain aboard the USS Indianapolis described waking up mid-air after a torpedo exploded under his room. He slammed back into the deck and tried to stand up, only to be knocked down by the next explosion. Much of the ship was immediately on fire. All modes of communication were instantly destroyed. Damage Control Officer Lieutenant Commander Casey Moore informed McVeigh that the ship was going down rapidly at the head. When asked by Commander Moore if he wanted to abandon ship, McVeigh said no, believing there was still hope to save the vessel. It wasn't until two or three minutes later when Commander Flynn, McVeigh's trusted second-in-command, insisted the ship was unsavable that McVeigh gave the command to pass the word to abandon ship. Of the 1,196 men aboard the USS Indianapolis, an estimated 850 were able to escape before she sank. The majority of the crew jumped at the very last moments and saw the ship's stern rise a hundred feet into the air before plunging into the water. The entire ship had sunk in only 12 minutes. The sailors had leaped into the water in total darkness, many of them naked. The surrounding sea was thick with fuel oil from the ship's tanks, causing choking, burning, and clogging their noses. Rocked by 12-foot swells, many of the men swallowed the oil and seawater, causing them to vomit into the waters that continually and cruelly splashed against their faces. As Monday morning dawned, close to 60 men were discovered dead in their life jackets. Those who survived were happy to see the sunrise, but soon suffered under intolerable heat. Next came the photophobia. Caused by the sun reflecting off the fuel oil, the affliction felt like two hot balls of fire burning through their eyelids. And then things got worse. The survivors were waiting to be rescued in what turned out to be shark-infested waters. Initially, the sharks only preyed on the dead bodies, but eventually they attacked the living. What happened next is considered the worst shark attack on humans in history. At 11.25 a.m. on August 2nd, Lieutenant Wilbur C. Gwynn spotted an oil slick approximately 250 miles north of Peleliu while on a routine patrol flight. After changing course to investigate, he spotted a group of 30 survivors. By Friday afternoon, almost five days after the Indianapolis had sunk, Captain McVeigh and the 316 remaining survivors were rescued and taken to Laity and Peleliu. This sinking ranks as the most deadly disaster for a single vessel at sea in U.S. naval history. Fun Facts, a.k.a. Death Stats Of the 1,195 men on board, approximately 300 crew members went down with the ship. With few lifeboats, around 600 men died from exposure or shark attack while waiting to be rescued. The surviving men were spotted three days later by a U.S. Navy patrol plane. By the time the rescuers reached them, only 316 of the 1,195 men were still alive. On November 6, 1968, Charles Butler McVeigh III died by suicide. He was found on his front lawn, a Navy revolver in one hand and a toy sailor in the other. With us 
today we have producer Amanda Lund. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Alarmy. Fact checker Chris Smith. Hello. And our very special guest today, you know her from our Erios family, Maria Blasushi. Hi, guys. <laughs> I said Blasushi instead of Blasucci. <laughs> Blasucci. Mm. <laughs> um, Maria, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, first of all, let's start off by telling our listeners about your new podcast. Oh, my God. This is such it's a It's not really idea. a new podcast. It's well. It's a, a version. Yeah, it's it's a new version of us. So Amanda Lund, producer Amanda Lund on Hello. this very show and I do a show called The Big Ones, which Rebecca and Fact Checker Chris have both been on. And for the summer, we're doing a summer series called Playcation. And it, man, is it a fun premise. It's Amanda and I planning fake vacations to take. And then you guys as listeners get to vote and say which one you'd rather take. It's such a fun concept and such a fun show and so funny. I, I've been uh, voting every chance I get. Well, that yeah. I think you're I only allowed to vote aspect. once. I think. Well, I think she's. You're well, only we've allowed to vote once. <laughs> no, but we've I created several. Fake no, accounts. but I mean, I mean, like you know, you ask other questions like, "Where do you want us to go next?" Yes, you yeah, know, yeah. or there's a lot of uh, voting. Or, or like, you know. Yeah, yeah. And you don't have to tell me who you voted for. I know who you voted (laughs) for. Well, you didn't vote hard enough because Maria won the first episode. So on episode one, we both planned trips to Bermuda. And we spin Mm -hmm. what we call the Wheel of Adventure to dictate our travel terms. So that includes like budget. Um, I was traveling on an economy budget. Maria got what we call a Clooney budget, which means the sky's the limit. Wow. Yep. Yeah, and so it's yeah. it's really fun. Um, we have this today, actually, our episode where we go to Kimberley, Australia. And I know we have a lot of listeners here um, of, at The Alarmist who are interested in Australia, as we know from the <laughs> emu episode. <laughs> so they might be interested in That's that. Right. And then next week, we're going to Berlin, which, oh, my God, we have to do an Alarmist episode on some of this Cold War stuff because Ooh. I got really deep into Cold War history researching this episode. Let me guess, you're going to take us to a museum on your packet. Oh yeah, on your- <laughs> we both we both go we go both go muse- muse- to museums, um, and we both picked different museums, which is kind of crazy. Yeah, Maria cool. went the more art and history route, and I was like going to the East German spy museums. It was. Very cool. Which I would love to go to. Yeah, those are cool museums. That I honestly, if I had to do it again, I might pick those museums. But I don't know. I do like going to see, you know, impressionist art. You know, call me crazy. So- That's not crazy. I mean, they, there's a reason why um, they hang them on walls and charge people to go and see them. What is that reason? Because they're cool looking, I guess. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Maria, you were telling us that you have your grandfather, I believe, has a, a special connection to the, the late Am I saying yeah, it right? so the island um, when Amanda was was recapping the you know the information on the episode we're doing today, they mentioned the the island Laity, which is where my grandfather, Grandpa Blasucci, was stationed during World War II. And so, growing up, we always heard stories about him, you know, being on that island. And he actually got he got sick, and they sent him to um, New Guinea, I believe, to get to get better um and he just talked like he talks about the boat ride to new guinea and he's like it was the worst he said just men were sick everywhere and it was just like he had such stories about that time of in his life but we had like pictures and stuff so yeah just here seeing the word laity i was like oh that's yeah i guess that's the perfect segue honestly to this terrible tragedy yeah (laughs) i'm known for my segues shall we start putting things up on the board you know, just to just to get those wheels cranking. Maria's grandpa? No. No. <laughs> I think we should put um, bad timing or I guess we can call it like good old bad luck. Good, good old, old bad, bad luck. luck. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> good old bad luck. Good start. Good start. Uh, This is according to historian Richard Hulver. After delivering components for the atomic bomb dropped in Hiroshima to 
Tinian on July 26, 1945, Captain McVeigh primarily concerned himself with getting his crew in peak fighting condition before returning to the forward area to join Task Force 95 for the invasion of mainland Japan. So a little backstory on this. A lot of the crew members were really, really young, young men, like 16 to 18. And so they needed um, training. McVeigh's concern for training was made even more evident by his request for routing instructions to put him at his final stretch into laity in the early morning hours so that he could maximize the last few miles with anti-aircraft practice in the best light to follow the tracer shells. This early morning arrival meant that McVeigh had two right routing options. He could leave on the 26th, travel at 25 knots, and arrive to laity the morning of July 3rd, uh, 30th, sorry, or leave the morning of July 28th, travel 15.7 knots and arrive the morning of July 31st. Having just pushed his engines on the top secret delivery, McVeigh opted for the slower speed transit. Unbeknownst to him, this decision would place his ship directly in the path of the Japanese submarine I-58. What I'm saying is like, you know, sometimes it's it's one of those things where like a domino effect, like one thing leads to the other. And if it hadn't been for him having gone too fast to get the stuff for the bomb, to, you know, drop off the delivery for the, the bomb, then perhaps he would have gone faster. And if he, if he was traveling faster, then he might not have been hit. Mm. So l- let's also put the captain up on the board. Captain McVeigh. Now, he is the captain of the ship, and he's who ultimately got blamed for the sinking of the Indianapolis. And according, again, to historian Richard Hulver, Captain McVeigh's concern for getting his crew prepared to the anticipated bloodbath that an invasion of Japan would be likely factored into his decision to seize zigzagging the night that his ship was sunk. Feeling pressed for time, he used the discretion granted him under his routing orders and seized zigzagging the night of the 29th through the 30th of July to make up time lost during required daylight zigzagging. Unfortunately, the poor visibility justifying this decision improved just as Indianapolis came in range of I-58. McVeigh took full responsibility for the loss of Indianapolis. Although zigzagging would not have saved his ship, he understood that his decision contributed to her loss and that a commander's responsibility for his ship then and now is absolute. The nighttime sinking proved that continuing to zigzag would have been prudent. In interviews and testimony at the court of inquiry and uh, court-martial, McVeigh blamed no one but himself for failure to zigzag. He anticipated the scrutiny that would fall on him and his actions, and he felt that he failed his men. I think we should put failure to zigzag. But can you blame him? Because that, as it was kind of in the rule book, right? That if there was poor visibility, that you didn't have to, that you shouldn't zigzag, right? Or was he doing that to make up time? I'm not, I'm, because if that's the case, then I'm like, okay, let's hold on a minute. But if it is kind of like there's poor visibility, let's go, let's stop zigzagging for the safety of the men and everything. And, you know, that's another thing. I think you bring up a good point. And I wasn't going to say this until later on. It's a little early for this one. Uh, but I was going to blame a good night's sleep. And this this has something to do with what you're talking about, Maria. Right. So okay. apparently the the moon wasn't out and it's it was cloudy. And therefore, he thought that he could go undetected as long as the moon was not out. So on top of that, zigzagging was a disruptive form of traveling during sleep hours. Oh. Mm. Because if you think about the motion, it's, 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 not, it's not a direct... Um, well, it's a zigzag. It's a zigzag. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a straight I, line. Yeah. It's not a straight no. line. Now, That's personally, right, for Amanda. me, a, str- a zigzag puts me to sleep. Like when I was a kid and my mom... What? When I was a kid and my mom, I couldn't go down as a baby. She'd put me in a carriage and do like a zigzag. She'd really? just let you go down the street. <laughs> she'd just push me. 
She'd put you in the car and she'd just kind of weave in and out of oncoming yes, traffic. Yes, and it was the high the screeching from her tires that was sort of like a lulling quality for me. That's nice. But I think that could have c- contributed to to that, Maria. And as someone who values sleep, mm. yeah. And if they had been traveling for a long time, uh, per- I'm assuming zigzagging while they were doing it, it, he could have just been like, you know what? The moon's not out. Let's get some Z's tonight. Letting your guard down, maybe. Mm. Yeah. I and mean, especially after the Japanese, like uh, this was after Pearl Harbor, right? Because yes. they, they were basically sending the bomb over. So, yeah. you know, Pearl Harbor was a surprise attack. Massive surprise. So they had they should have had their guard up the whole way through. And the zigzag was that extra layer of security that perhaps they needed in this scenario. Here's the thing. It's not proven that a zigzag will help. So I'm sure that was in the back of his mind. Mm. Mm. But it does say, you know, I'm reading here that a ship would normally stop the zigzag at sunset except on clear, brightly moonlit nights. I think he was in all, it all made sense to stop zigzagging if it was poor visibility and the moon wasn't out. Uh, Look, I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. But he traditionally has been blamed for this disaster. Later on, he was vindicated. Well, he's the captain. Uh, Right. So it's also like, did he survive? He did. So this is like, if you're the captain and you survive, like, sorry, you're gonna take the blame. Mm -hmm. I was listening to a podcast about this and they were saying that they were in groups of like 14 to 30 out in the water and they tried to stick together like with, with the rafts, but with the tides and because they were out in the water for so long, they got spread apart to the point that they were like all kind of 25 miles apart. And apparently the captain's group, they, when, when the ship went down, whatever happened, they couldn't see any other people around. So they thought they were the only ones who survived. Wow. Out of the, the over, you know, out of the like over 800 people who jumped. Wow. Jeez Louise. Into the water. I have to say that reading through, um, you know, in the beginning, what happened, this was a real roller coaster. This is a real zigzag mm. because you're starting out telling me that this is a ship carrying top secret, like nuclear materials. So at first I was like, well, there we go. Like, take me back to Halifax. Like, we're going to have an explosion. And then the Japanese submarine comes into play and I'm like, well, here we go. And then like a total curveball with the sharks. Let's talk about the sharks that because the sharks also need to go up on the board. I know I, I blame sharks left and right, but they didn't sink the ship. They didn't sink the ship. You know, they weren't plotting. <laughs> they, they didn't sink the ship, but they, <laughs> they didn't get together and go, you know what? Here we go, guys. That would be amazing. Yum, yum. You, wanna, you guys want to feast? Mm. Yeah. Who were the sharks working for is what I want to know. That's yes. I, um, re- I don't think that's in my research. I can look that up. I can look into that. <laughs> Honestly, I think a big thing, and, and yeah, sharks on the board, sure. I would love to s- just put up on the board the war. Because I think yeah. if it wasn't for the war, then these, then then this wouldn't have been going on, you know. Yeah. And then <gasps> Hitler. Well, yeah. that's actually our listen. Our that's our listener recommendation, which I'll read right now. And we're gonna get back to these sharks because we have more to discuss. Um, but our listener yes. <laughs> recommendation <laughs> comes from Samantha Kirken Doll three three three. And they say Hitler, Japan was Hitler's ally during World War II. It is time for Hitler to go to the alarmist jail. Big slap could be the sharks. Hashtag add water sound effects to the slap. Okay, well, listen, like I can only take so many instructions. (laughs) (laughs) That's a little directorial in our hashtag. I love it, though. I I I do appreciate it. Well, I am reading here, though, you know, specifically, you know, America going to war with Japan. You know, I'm, I'm reading here, although Japan continued to negotiate with the United States up to the day of the Pearl Harbor attack, the government of Prime Minister Tojo Hideki decided on war. 
and Admiral Yamamoto Isoroku, the commander-in-chief of Japan's combined fleet, had planned the attack against the U.S. Pacific fleet with great care. So, I mean, Hitler, yes, but also the Japanese government that decided to, to bomb America that, uh, that really did send us into war into the Pacific, which is and where this all took place. I'm literally just realizing that I don't think I have the uh, Japanese... Uh, submarine captain uh, who who uh, shot the torpedoes. Yeah, we got to put him uh, up. On my list. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll yeah, put him up. That one. Yep, totally. You can totally see us missing that. One yeah. For sure. So good call there. <laughs> and also, <laughs> I think we should Daisy. put up um, Pearl Harbor, the Pearl Harbor attack. Just sure. Yes. Let's put Pearl Harbor. Uh, I'm looking it up. Oh, Hashimoto. Got that, it. Commander Hashimoto. So. Back to the sharks. <laughs> <laughs> we know who Rebecca is angling for already. <laughs> okay. I sent, so, my t- I sent my team out to kind of figure out who the sharks were working for, but they haven't come up with anything, but they're still working. Um, American Heritage says that the sharks were lurking everywhere. Dr. Haynes's group discovered that as long as the men remained grouped together, the sharks would not attack. Yet every group's experience with the predator was different. In one group, every sailor splashed and flailed the water to frighten the attackers away. In another, the decision was made to remain perfectly still and quiet. I mean, can you imagine this? He goes on. Seaman Richard Thelen remembers seeing some 25 men attacked while in the largest group. Dr. Haynes eventually counted 88 of the dead mutilated by the creatures. A few seamen actually survived attacks. One sailor swam up to Seaman McClin, showing him the wound he received from a shark. McClin remembers the huge pie-shaped gash in the man's side. The sailor later swam away, never to be seen again. The hallucinations began on Tuesday. Some wanted to go below deck for milk or take a swim with the Hollywood beauties they saw nearby. So they were hallucinating. Uh, Fights broke out and more than one man was stabbed by others (gasps) who had knives. With uh, with dawn, the men began their third day in the water. It would it was Wednesday, August first. The surviving men endured Wednesday night, their fourth evening in the water, with chills, fever, and still more delirium. And I just want to point out that in the in the film Jaws, this is the the monologue. This is the Quint character oh. monologue. Aspects of the dialogue are fictionalized, but this is what it's based on. I never realized that. Oh, my God. Now, what is the lifeboat situation on a vessel like this? And how much does timing play into this? Because I know the captain hesitated in calling abandoned ship. Well, there were plenty of life rafts on the ship. And I believe they actually had double the amount that they needed. So this is the opposite of the Titanic. But they didn't have a lot of time to deploy the rafts because Mm. it went down in 12 minutes. Wow! So if you think about it, the the Titanic went down in like two hours Mm -hmm. or a little bit over two hours. So this was 12 minutes, which it's like we I don't know how long we've been talking, but it's it's been more right now. (laughs) Uh, We've been talking for about 20, 23 (laughs) minutes. You'd have you to know, put a podcast on two two times, like two two just, X, right? I just want everyone to know what where we are right now in the podcast and do the math. Like yeah. we're probably like halfway. Should we start a timer a and then start a timer now and then say t- twelve? It's been twelve. Yeah, minutes. why don't we do that? Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> they had, I, I believe, most of them had life jackets on, but they weren't all on rafts. So some of them were in the water, just like kind of like holding on to whatever they could find. Um, this is again, Richard Holver, the life-saving equipment available to the crew was inadequate for the situation. Most of the men in the water had either a pneumatic life belts or Kapok life jackets. Pneumatic life belts were the less desirable flotation device because they could slip down the body and cause the wearer to be flipped under and stuck. Kapok vests worked well, but were not designed for five days use in the water. By day two 
or three, these became waterlogged and came precariously close to holding the wearer's head below the waterline. So they, like, they weren't meant to last that long. So they started to sink the, after three days, they started to sink the people that were wearing them. So opposite of a life vest. The rapidity in which the Indianapolis listed to 90 degrees and went under prevented many of their life rafts from being deployed. Those crew, unfortunate, fortunate enough to have a life raft available to them, had access to flares, fresh water breakers, basic medical supri- supplies, and provisions such as malted milk and spam. Unfortunately, most of the water breakers contained undrinkable brackish water. This is frustrating. Due to leaks, and there was not enough burn ointment, and the gauze was destroyed by water damage. So, what's the point of all this medical aid if it's if once it goes into the water, it's not going to be useful? Right. So, what do we call that? Bad or, or poor, bad life saving equipment. It's bad for this specific scenario, is the thing. And uh... those, yeah, those. Life jackets that retain water to me sound like you got to come up with a better idea, right? Yeah, the ones that slip down and put you underwater basically are maybe not the best. Maybe those weren't the best ones to give to the crew. Yeah, like maybe we should rethink this. Send it back to the inventor and see if he come up with a different design. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but it sounds like it was unprecedented also. And this kind of goes into you putting bad luck up on the board, Rebecca. The fact that they weren't discovered um, for five days seems really unprecedented. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And this is what makes me so angry, Amanda. (laughs) So angry. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Wind like up. You're, ce- you're celebrating the fact that you set Rebecca. <laughs> I, I am. I'm like a reality <laughs> TV producer where I kind of like like to poke Rebecca until I get Good the reaction know. I want. Good to know. And then she stands back and just crosses her arm and then just goes <laughs> roll the tape. Oh, <laughs> I okay. go. You're gonna want to get this. Make sure we're recording. <laughs> All the cameras turn towards me. <laughs> Closer. Zoom in. Every zoom in. angle. She's about to pop off. Get, get a Push in, push in. (laughs) We're getting this on sound, right? You're going to have to lower the volume. She's screaming. (laughs) Um, Communication failures. Okay. Mm -hmm. Always, yes. Brace yourself. hold Hold on to your butts, okay? Broader operational failures in the Pacific Fleet compounded the tragic loss as the men struggled to survive while awaiting rescues. Communication overloads in ports, as well as desires to limit radio traffic to conceal operational movements, remember, secrecy, Mm. had led the Navy to remove requirements for port directors to report arrivals of combatant ships. Indianapolis non-arrival at laity was incorrectly interpreted in the same light as an arrival and not reported. The non-reporting unfortunately resulted in Indianapolis never being missed in laity. Mm. So they never reported that it was missing. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's really upsetting. It gets worse. Oh, boy. <laughs> this is a man. This Pu- is when a man is. Push in. Push in. in. God damn it. Push in. <laughs> you take Get control, Amanda. You take control of the camera. You will let me do it. <laughs> I'm just covered in sweat. <laughs> this is according to the Sinky of Ind- U- USS Indianapolis uh, Navy Department press release that came out on the, uh, February of 1946. So... Uh, Lieutenant Commander Jules Sancho was not aware that the Indianapolis had not arrived. This is um, in in laity. He was not aware that the Indianapolis had not arrived as was scheduled and that she should be considered to be overdue. It, however, was his duty in his capacity as acting port director to keep himself informed of such matters. Lieutenant Stuart Gibson, the operations officer under the port director, was the officer who was immediately concerned with the movements of the Indianapolis. The non-arrival of that vessel on schedule was known at once to Lieutenant Gibson, who not only failed to investigate the matter, but made no immediate report of the facts to his superiors. So the guy knew 
but he he didn't report it. Okay. While not excusing the failure of, of Lieutenant Commander Sancho and Lieutenant Gibson to use the initiative and ordinary good judgment in, in this connection, which would have been expected of naval officers, this dereliction may be related to the difficulties of an organization which had been brought on by the exceedingly rapid expansion of the Navy to meet its wartime requirements. So, and, and later on, when they did investigations onto this disaster, they interviewed this, these people, and because it wasn't part of the protocol, they got away with it. They was just like, well, it wasn't part of the protocol, so we didn't have to do it, so it's not our fault. Okay, so I'm putting Lieutenant Gibson up on the board, and then was who else should I be putting up here for this? Did the Navy grow too fast too soon? That's what they're implying. Want to put up growing pains there? Yeah, Navy growing pains. Trying too hard, American uh, exceptionalism. Mm. Well, I think desperation to end the war. We talked about this when we did um, the bombs, when we did uh, Hiroshima right. and Nagasaki. Just th- this desperation to end the war. They're being well, a little gotta, bit reckless. I yeah. totally agree. And also, we got to throw that damn bomb on there because oh. that was what all the secrecy was about. Like yes. they didn't even tell the captain what was on the ship. It's like that's crazy. It, and and it was the secrecy that was also led them to uh, send it out alone and not have protective ships around it, right? I think we should put the secrecy of the mission. Secret missions. Yeah. Yeah. They. It was also the reason that they... They didn't warn the cruiser of other other submarine uh, attacks in the. There had been other submarine attacks in the area, and they didn't warn the cruiser out of fear of uh, disclosing that the navy had broken Japan's naval codes. They couldn't tell him because then Japan would know that they had the information. Right. <sighs> okay. It's all secrecy. Yeah. See, secrecy is. Secret secrets are no fun. Secret secrets hurt someone. <laughs> push in. You guys push, that, in. Right? <laughs> push in. Push <laughs> in. She's falling apart. This is yeah. Rebecca, how do you feel right now? Her eyes are rolling in the back of her head. Like she's we should not be exploiting this kind of I'm just saying, breakdown. Doesn't everyone know that saying? <laughs> uh, time check, so last things to throw up on the board. Marie, if you have anything to add, please. I would just say, I mean, I think the war is a big thing for for me in that, you know, no war, no, you know, stuff like this isn't happening. And I know that's a very grand statement, but it really does, you know, come down to that. And that's horrible, you know, crazy things happen during wars and people just... It's where the secrets come from. It's where like all it's all because we're in war. It's why there was a secret mission going on. You know, it's just all of this culminates into we were at war and people make these decisions during war that put people's lives at risk and people die. Who came up with the idea of war? Because they should go up on this list because (laughs) I mean, like what a terrible idea. Mind your business. Just discuss whatever happened. A good old discussion or a reality show. Just <laughs> if we, well, we I could guess solve, you can't. There's people. Some people won't discuss. Some people just take what they want. And what you know, you know, what do you do on the other side if they're taking things that are yours? You go well. Let's go to war. I guess. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's how it happens, and that's how they say it too. Well, well, it's gonna war. I guess. Uh, I Should know, I just I put war in time. general, or we're going really sort of zoomed out here? But I'd say World War Two. I mean, I would say the World War Two. Yeah. Okay, well, and keep an open mind, Maria, because we haven't gone. We have to go through the whole process of elimination. Well, yeah, I know yeah. that, but I'm just saying, you know, I, Rebecca can get. You know, I don't know. I know it's zooming in on me right now. I'm getting pretty heated. <laughs> <laughs> zoom out, zoom uh, out, Maria. You're obviously <laughs> making a scene to get more screen yeah. time. You're, yeah, you're that just, girl. Your, your emotional breakdown is not nearly as authentic. She's as... throwing the wine glass. Zoom out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cut to camera. Number A. Cut. She's oh, too God. thirsty. I'm too thirsty for the attention. <laughs> uh, but I know we are short on time, but I, I, I have one more thing that we need oh, to... Oh, that's uh, the timer. So that was 12 Oh, minutes. that was 12 Oh, minutes. God, it Jeez. felt like an hour. 
(laughs) (laughs) That's plenty of time. (laughs) Um, You know, people are obsessed with, a lot of people know so much about this. And if I don't say this, I don't want to get in trouble. Um, No escort. We haven't talked about this, but no escort. According to Richard Holver, wartime complacency had also set in. And at this point, the Philippine Sea was seen as a backwater on which the Navy did not deem dangerous enough to require escorts to protect against submarines. Captain McVeigh inquired, he asked for one to port authorities at Guam, but was told none were available or none and none nor were they needed. Mm. Traveling with an escort made Captain McVeigh uneasy because if the worst happened, his ship was alone and those ships did not have underwater detection. The, The escort that they would have been with they could have seen the submarine or at least the torpedoes coming their way. They could have detected them. Yeah, so underestimating the enemy. Uh, that makes me mad that they, that he asked for an escort and he didn't get one because they, that makes me angry. That's yeah. a bummer, man. Okay, push in. <laughs> no, I don't Fine. want it. I'm off well, the show. She, I already left the show. This is me in the... <laughs> That's you in the car? I'm mom? in my car. Okay, so we're gonna... Let's see what we got. But before Chris reads the list, let's take a break. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So who is to blame for the disaster of the USS Indianapolis sinking? Good old bad luck. Captain McVeigh, failure to zigzag, need for good night's sleep, letting your guard down, sharks, World War II, Hitler, the Japanese government, the Pearl Harbor attack, Lieutenant Commander Moshitsura Hashimoto, bad life-saving equipment, communication failures, Lieutenant Gibson, Navy growing pains, desperation to end the war, nuclear bombs, secret missions, no escort, or underestimating the enemy. Mm. These are all great. I mean, none of these seem out of place here. I mean, have you ever done an alarmist where you just go put them all in jail? Let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have somewhere to be? <laughs> I, pro- I, I promise you I don't I do not it seemed like the desperate plea of somewhere who, someone who just remembered they had something at six <laughs> <laughs> seriously texting on the side saying like I'll be there in ten I'll be there in ten <laughs> yeah no, I think we still got to go through it with it, Maria. We got to. All gotta right, go it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard because these are all good. Now, I think we can fold in uh, underestimating the enemy. Oh, I, I had a good idea the for Japanese that. Japanese government. Yeah, yeah, with the Japanese government. I think that's what it was. We can blame Japan also for the Pearl Harbor attack. So the Pearl Harbor attack can mm-hmm. be rolled into Japanese government. Yeah. Let's see. We have. I think need for a good night's sleep is a little bit speculative. 
That's true. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Letting your guard down feels a little bit like underestimating the the enemy. Yeah. And yes. I don't I, I think Captain McVeigh didn't seem like he was uh not paying attention. I think he was properly and accurately pretty nervous about the situation. Yeah. But, and he asked for the escort, they just mm-hmm. wouldn't give it to him. I was going to say, you could put nuclear bombs and secret missions together because that's kind of, that's the same. So what do you think? Maybe roll secret missions into nuclear bombs? Maybe vice versa. Because the secrecy is what really led to the no escort um, and the lack of communication, all of that stuff. But also, don't you think they were just like, this, this nuclear bomb, I feel like, drove them a little mad. Like the the government was just like obsessed with this atomic bomb. Right. Well, it required sort of new protocols and they were trying to like sort of outthink themselves in order to kind of deal with this bomb. Yeah. And that sort of was part of why the Indianap- Indianapolis was alone and like what it was doing there and all that stuff. Okay, so that's I'm with interesting. You. Like, I think the bomb and just sort of like everything that went along with it, which was they, secrecy, like secrecy is involved. Right, with right. That. They went bomb crazy. Okay, we'll wrap it into the bomb, and then I think we could also wrap in desperation to end the war into the bomb. Yeah. And you can kind of say growing pains were yeah. bomb sort of adjacent because like they didn't know what to do with this thing. It was maybe. And I think we can roll. Lieutenant Gibson into communication failures because there were other people who could have flagged it. Mm, Okay. So we've narrowed it down. I think we can take the sharks off now. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. Maria, what do you think about that? I, you know, the sharks were a big part of the gruesomeness of it, of the, you know, you know, how horrific it was. I don't know if they were to blame. She's just defending her big swing of trying to put everybody in jail. I, you know, if I could, which I tried to do, which I tried to do, I tried to put them all in jail, but I was told, uh uh-uh. So yeah, if you got to take them off, take them off. (laughs) All right. We'll take the sharks off. Yeah. I mean, we have the slap still. Don't forget about our second place. That's right. <laughs> you just want to hear the sound of a, someone slapping a shark. <laughs> you just want to put that, that sound, sound like? effect. I don't know what it that would sound like. like. More wet, like, like the yeah, listener like recommended. <laughs> you'd have to get him out of the water to get any real like friction. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You can't yes. slap a shark in the water. That's true. It would sound really, uh, it would be like a wet, yeah, like a wet slap. It would be very harsh it would be be sort of satisfying amanda if you can i'll I'll see what i can do i might have to get down to the beach see if i can get it you just buy a big fish at the fish market amanda and then you just hold the microphone up to it as you slap it not authentic not authentic oh yeah okay that sounds good do we think we can like who's to blame more here hitler world war one or the japanese government you know World War II. I'm sorry, sorry, World War II. I think probably the thing that sort of you have to go for here is the Japanese government over those other two. Unfortunately, I guess like Hitler's going to slip away again. Could we? Could <laughs> does we he just... usually? Does he usually slip away? Yeah, it's unreal. he does. Yeah, he kind of gets away. Hmm. Yeah. Perhaps we can keep the war, like Maria had petitioned. You don't there. have to do me any favors. I'm, you know, I'm here as a guest, and I. <laughs> I... <laughs> no, but you kind of sold me on it. <laughs> Look, I mean, yes, I think if we want to pinpoint something smaller, you know, more, you know, laser focus in on something more than I think communication or you know the bombs or secret mission. That's all part of that. So I would take off World War II if we do want to laser in on something more specific but what about this i was thinking of taking the commander off hashimoto um because that is that's war like he was it's not like he did it on purpose i mean he did do it on purpose but you know what i mean like they're at war well he was he could be everything could be wrapped into world war ii i think if we want to wrap in the japanese government hitler and uh the commander hashimoto that could all go into world war two i think you're right yeah just to read what we have it's good old bad luck still there uh failure to zigzag the war 
World War II, um, bad life-saving equipment, communication failures, nuclear bombs, and no escort. I got somewhere to be. Can we just throw them all in jail? Or? <laughs> Excuse me for thinking that we all brainstormed really well and that we really kind of figured it out. You know, a good board. You love to respect a good board. Yes, I do. But a good board needs to be peeled down. That's right. That's right. I think you can get rid of bad, bad life-saving equipment and and uh, good old bad luck. Okay. I, okay. I'm with you yeah. because... The bad life-saving equipment was bad, but... It would have helped. It, it could have helped. Didn't, yeah, didn't. <laughs> yeah. And I just have to say that the... You know, at first I wasn't sold on bad luck, but there was an element of that because of the change in weather. Because it was a foggy night, and then right mm, around the time no, they came so into true. the view... Um, that like it cleared up. And so you could call that bad luck, but as we know with weather, it changes all the time. So I'm still okay with taking it off the board. Okay. And I think we could take failure to zigzag off the board. Okay. Because I don't think that's ultimately the reason. Well, not only that, but I think the Japanese commander admitted to the fact that if they were zigzagging, he would have hit them anyway because the way he shot his rockets was like, in so- he fanned them out in such a way He did fan them out, yeah. He was sort well, of anticipating a zigzag or something like that. Now, okay. communication failures is really hitting something with me. I'm looking me at that too. and I'm going, whoa. Mm-hmm. They're me seen too. step by step, you know, inch by inch. <laughs> it's really making sense that people just not hearing one another did a lot in this. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, Maria, big time. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Sure, you you can't look. You're at war, so if something happens while you're at war, look, it's ter- it's bad luck, right? But that's the name of the game. But if they, if someone had reported the ship missing when it didn't show up to the port, so many lives would have been saved. Yeah, at least a majority of the eight hundred. But instead, they didn't report it, and a lot of people drowned were eaten by sharks, uh, died of dehydration. Uh, I mean, it, it's the summer in the Pacific. Imagine that heat, like, terrible. I mean, are um, you thinking we send communications failures to jail? Yeah. And I think no escort gets a slap. What do you think? Because if they had had an escort... They could have they anticipated wouldn't, the they, attack. Yeah. You can't blame but, the other side for trying to shoot a torpedo during a war. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't agree with war like Maria, w- w- right? Well, <laughs> Again, well I don't start? agree with war. No. Rebecca? But once we're in it, you got to play the game. Uh, can I add something really, and not to the, I'm just saying yeah. to the no escort thing. That to me, there is a tinge of that that does go into communication failures. Yeah. Because the captain did say, hey, I want an escort. And they went, no, 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 no. Yeah. And there it and I may be wrong on this. I just want to air it out and talk about it. But if you know, I do wonder if that is part of communication of someone asking for something and someone not understanding the importance of that ask. Uh, along those lines, for the communication failures and the no escort escort, were those somehow connected to it being a secret mission, or are those just like totally separate? I think they are. So I, I are I'm gonna say something here that I think we might want to consider giving a slap to secret missions or even sending it to jail because to me those are all somehow connected it's not just a lapse in communication it's like it's the secret mission oh I think they should have published it Mm. in in a Japanese newspaper or something what they were going to (laughs) do no (laughs) I mean I'm just saying that's the reason for some of these no I agree I mean the secrecy within it's the own their own ranks was what is really kind of astonishing and you wonder how often that goes on in the navy i should look into that me and the it guys and gals are gonna get into that Um, oh you hired some women in the it now no i've always they've always been there we have a great diverse team okay but i just call them guys usually but you it's chris and the gals when chris goes to work it's chris and the gals his all women team it's Josie and the Pussycats, but for fact-checking. You know, in defense um, of that. secret missions, in defense yeah. of secret missions, I will say that a lot, you know, I'm sure a lot of those decisions are made to save people's lives, to not give mm-hmm. them the information that if they did get captured, they wouldn't have that information. 
um, mm. you know, to so there is something where I do take the side of like, okay, well, the secrecy is probably meant, but you know, it did more harm than good in this case. That's for sure. If I want to be specific here, then maybe we slap the nuclear nuclear bombs. Okay. Because it, 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 it really encompasses what, not just the the war in general, but like what was happening, what this scenario yeah. entailed. And that was the big secret too. I mean, yeah, yeah. That talk was, about secret missions. Like yeah. the big secret was the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I feel good about this if you guys do. I feel great. Same. Okay. I'm going to call it. Nuclear bombs. You're getting the big slap. Communication failures. You're going to the alarmist jail. And there you have it. Have we ever slapped a bomb before? <laughs> uh, I think this is a first. Should we spray it down so it gets nice and wet so we can have mana come up with that sl- wet sound effect? Yeah, because I just ordered this big... Um... <laughs> <laughs> this big fish so Canist- oh you already got the fish yeah well, it's a branzino could- so i'll I just throw it hungry. on the grill i'll just throw it on the grill after okay. <laughs> uh, well i mean maria thank you so much for joining us and helping us get to the bottom of who's to blame for the uss indianapolis sinking you're welcome and i do i have to go i am so late to this dinner i'm supposed to <laughs> After the sinking of the USS Indianapolis, according to historian Richard Holver, the Navy addressed many of the contributing factors for the loss of life at sea immediately after the August 3rd rescue. Escort became a requirement for all U.S. ships with 500 crew. Additionally, the misinterpreted reporting procedure was remedied. It became a requirement for any U.S. ship five hours overdue to be immediately reported, and procedures for better ship movement reports were initiated. The discretion for zigzagging given to captains sailing the Pacific waters was taken away, and all combatant ships were directed to zigzag at all times. Captain McVeigh also advocated for life-saving equipment improvements. He urged the Navy to provide parachute flares in emergency kits, to adopt a life preserver with a pocket containing fresh water for dull-colored life rafts to be replaced with bright yellow ones, and for the susceptible wooden water breakers to be replaced with watertight metal ones, just to name a few. According to Business Insider, McVeigh would later be charged with negligence in the loss of the ship, even though he was restored to active duty after his court-martial and retired a rear admiral The guilt of the loss haunted him for the rest of his life. On October 2000, after being presented with a trove of research, Congress passed a resolution stating that Captain McVeigh's record should state that he is exonerated for the loss of the Indianapolis. President Bill Clinton signed the resolution, and on July 2001, the Secretary of the Navy ordered McVeigh's record cleared of all wrongdoing. Wreckage from the USS Indianapolis was discovered on August 19, 2017 by the expedition crew of Paul G. Allen's research vessel Petrel. The Indianapolis was found 5,500 meters below the surface, resting on the floor of the North Pacific Ocean. Go for who you think is to blame by going to thealarmistpodcast.com. Follow us at the alarmist the on twitter at the alarmist podcast on instagram or email us at the alarmist podcast at gmail.com tune in next week we'll be discussing the assassination of harvey milk Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.